we really like to look under the umbrella of what is considered socially significant. So we are always looking at what's going to make you more independent. What is going to allow you to socialize with your peers more? Like Amy said, I think my biggest job is making sure a child can access reinforcement because if they're not reinforced for doing a particular skill or showing a particular behavior, they're not going to use it. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Today, I'm joined by Amy Prince and Amber Ladd. Amy and Amber are speech-language pathologists with over 31 combined years of experience. They are extremely passionate about working with children and integrating behavioral techniques and speech therapy. Amy and Amber are the co-owners of the Talk Team, a pediatric speech therapy clinic located in Fresno, California. They each received their Master's of Arts in Communication Disorders and Deaf Studies with an emphasis in speech-language pathology from California State University, Fresno. In addition, they are both board-certified behavior analysts. They have been employed in the public school system as well as private practice. They have extensive experience working with autistic children with sensory processing disorders, pragmatic language disorders, oral placement, feeding disorders, and extensive language needs. Amy and Amber are impassioned about training speech-language pathologists, behavioral therapists, and parents to work effectively with children with communication needs. They have presented numerous times at the annual California Speech, Language, and Hearing Association Conference, as well as at various private clinics and school districts within the state of California. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Amy and Amber, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited excited to be here. here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. So did that cover everything or is there anything else you want to add before we talk about the integration of language and behavior? I feel like that does cover everything. Mm -hmm. We do also own a company called Talk ABA that does behavioral intervention for autistic children as well. And so as we discuss, we have both things happening under our roof. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I'm excited to learn more about that. So let's talk about how you actually define behaviors in speech sessions and address them. You know, it's funny when we talk about behaviors in the context of therapy sessions and what we're encountering Really, what we're referring to the majority of the time is maladaptive behaviors and behaviors that are getting in the way of us making progress on our goals or whatever it is we're doing in our sessions. But really, behavior is everything we do all the time, whether it's impeding what we're doing or whether it's helping what we're doing. So really, when we look at behaviors as a whole, we are looking at how is someone behaving with their environment? How are they interacting? Our process when we are coaching and training on them, we're always talking about anything that gets in the way of you being able to make progress towards the goals that you've set for the kiddos with whom you work. And so 
behaviors, interfering behaviors can look different for every child, but we really encourage therapists to look at them and define them very objectively to talk through like, this is the thing, the thing that this child does that keeps me from being able to get to the point where we're working on his speech sounds or where we're working on his ability to answer WH questions. This thing gets in my way. This is my roadblock. And so when we want to look at those roadblocks, we want to make sure that we objectively see what they are and then start to address them in a way that lets us be successful, but also recognizes why it's happening. One of the most important things is for us to recognize what that behavior is founded in because it doesn't come out of nowhere. And so if you have an interfering behavior from a child, they're telling you something. They're telling you that it's too hard, it's too easy. They're telling you that they need more help. There's a variety of things that they're telling you. And so in order to recognize them, you have to objectively look at them and then start to figure out why they happen. I think it's also really important to look at kind of this umbrella, you know, being duly certified as speech language pathologists and BCBAs, we definitely have that lens of language and communication and the lens of behavior. And it's kind of funny how often we separate those out, but often, especially if we're working with kids who have speech and language needs, they, they cover each other. They, you know, behavior is communication and communication is behavior. So if we can look at it holistically and see, yes, you're telling me something in our field, we talk about accepting any form of communication that a child is using. And typically when we say that we're looking at, are they using some sort of AAC? Are they using spoken language? Are they using gestures? But a lot of our kids are using behaviors to communicate with us what they want and what they need. And it's our job to kind of look through that investigative lens to determine what their behavior is communicating to us. Yeah, great explanation. So I don't know if you've encountered this, but there are speech language pathologists in the field who say behavior isn't communication, behavior is dysregulation. So what do you say about that? Again, it's figuring out the why. I think there are kiddos that we're going to encounter that are, have horribly dysregulated sensory systems. There are kiddos out there that aren't available because they can't filter out noise. They can't filter out light, they, whatever it may be. There are kiddos who demonstrate behaviors because of their sensory system, but that's why you figure out the why. That's where you have to become a detective and determine because even that child who is is having interfering behaviors because of dysregulation, they're asking you for help. They're saying, I, I can't regulate myself. I can't, I can't put myself in a swing. I can't turn the lights down. I can't make the room cooler. I can't make your air conditioner quieter, whatever it might be. They they're telling you they need your help. And so at the end of the day, if it is a dysregulated sensory system, which again, there are professionals that can help you determine that. If that's what's determined, that student is still asking you for help. That kiddo is still saying, I can't calm this down in my body. I need somebody to help me figure out how. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you giving that explanation because I think a lot of times we're talking about the same thing, but because we use different terms, it gets convoluted and then it's like they don't believe in this. So I just hearing you explain it, like getting to the why, the purpose is the same, right? Like we all want the same thing for our kids. So let's talk about how you integrate 
applied behavioral analysis in speech therapy. Theory of applied behavioral analysis, right? Awesome. Yeah. And I want to say, I I appreciate you talking about it as a theory because ABA has become synonymous with, with a dirty word in some environment. It's become a very polarizing topic. For us, the theory of applied behavior analysis is the theory of looking at behaviors and the way our kiddos interact with their environment through that lens of every action happens for a reason. It happens to seek out a need or to express a need. And so using that mindset lets us view, we joke that we're bilingual. We speak English and behavior because that is a language in and of itself. And if you don't step back and realize that that's a way that a child is talking to you, then you're actually disrespecting them by saying that your your tantrum is just because you're stubborn or you're manipulative or we hear words like that. And I have yet to meet a three and a half year old who is so stubborn and manipulative that their tantrums are truly just directed that way. And they don't come from a point of trying to communicate something to us. We have um, a Lovas quote hanging on all every clinic we have. It's hanging on our wall. And it's, if the child is not learning the way we teach, then we have to teach the way the child learns. And I think that that is kind of the foundation that we come from. And where we pull behavior analysis in is looking at the antecedents and the consequences that are surrounding the behaviors that we're seeing. So what can we do to change that antecedent, to change that consequence? to make the child more successful with what we're working on. And that is where we're creating that basis of, okay, how do I change something here? Again, going back to the theory of the science, mm-hmm. how do I change what I'm doing to help you grow and learn? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So I'm really excited and curious to get into the next topic, which is what type of goals do you target And like, why? And where are you getting them from? Because some therapists that I see or some RBTs that I see, and even speech language pathologists, when they're doing the assessments, they're pulling the targets from the assessment and that's what they're making their goals on, right? You guys would say head emphatically. So (laughs) can we talk about that? Because it is a problem. I would say it's more of a problem probably with newer clinicians, right? Whether it's a speech language pathologist, RBT, which is, can you guys define RBT? Because I don't think we've defined that yet. An RBT is a registered behavior technician. So it's a usually high school diploma or bachelor's level person who's gone through training and supervision, passed an assessment in order to provide therapy in an ABA setting. Thank you. I imagine it goes to occupational therapy, newer occupational therapists, newer (laughs) physical therapists. Like this is a problem across all of these disciplines. So can we talk about how you would recommend addressing goals? Well, first I'll say I I had my first experience this year, which is funny because I've been a a speech therapist for a really long time. I had my first experience this year of opening an IEP and the baseline was their standard score on a self subtest. And it shocked me because, I mean, I know that's where we gather our information from, but that's not a child's baseline. That's a standard score. So exactly what you're talking about, we definitely see it. It's also pretty prevalent in ABA that they'll look at the next step on whatever assessment they're using for that child and say, okay, well, this is the next thing they need to learn. Amber and I really like 
to, to many people's annoyance, I imagine, to ask why. Why are you learning that? But why? Why are you teaching right now? I, I had a lot of kids that had subjective pronouns as their goals last year. And it was like, okay, but why? Why is this their goal? Yes, I understand that I test it on the castle or on the self. But why am I teaching this child subjective pronouns? What are they going to do with it? In every goal we write, and we can write goals for anything a child needs, but you better believe that it's going to have applicability in their real life. Whether it's talking to a teacher and saying, okay, where would this be used in your third grade classroom? What would you, when would a child need to be able to say herself, himself, themself, yourself? Or when would they need to answer WH questions? What does that look like? Teacher, you show me what it looks like when you do this with the child. Because it doesn't matter what a child can do in, in what we call an analog environment, but in a private speech room. It doesn't matter what they can do when they're one-on-one -on -one with you. It matters what they can do in their natural environment that allows them to contact reinforcement. Huh. And so if you can answer all the WH questions about Pete the Cat with me, but I send you back to class and your teacher is working on fables and you can't answer a single WH question about fables and she can't reinforce you, I failed. So I think it's the idea of it, specifically if you're a school SLP, getting into those classrooms and seeing why on earth a child needs to do those things and what it looks like when they're doing them well. And then if you're in the EI population or if you're in a private clinic like we are, figuring out how learning that is going to let them contact reinforcement with their mom and dad, their brother and sister, their grandparents, bringing those people into your goal writing and into your planning so that everybody knows why we're learning a skill. We really like to look under the umbrella of what is considered socially significant. So we are always looking at what's going to make you more independent. What is going to allow you to socialize with your peers more? I Like Amy said, I think my biggest job is making sure a child can access reinforcement because if they're not reinforced for doing a particular skill or showing a particular behavior, they're not going to use it. So again, if you can use it in my room, but you don't know the purpose of using it outside and you can't show someone else that it's a significant skill that's going to give you anything in your life, then what's the purpose? Why? And I feel like we just keep saying this. We keep going back to why. Why are we working on this? Why is it important to someone else? We often will bring in families, particularly in the clinic, and ask them what's hardest about your life at home right now. What language can we teach your child that's going to help your interactions, that's going to help your relationships? Again, going back to that, what makes it socially significant, not just significant because it comes next on a list. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say out loud, we also don't use percentages in almost any of our goals. Every now and then you might see a percentage if we're working on articulation on a, with a child who is literally just straight articulation. You might see a percentage. Almost every goal we work on has a rubric. We use a generalized rubric. We shape it for kids. But if you're using a rubric, you can hand it to mom and dad and they can circle what they see on the rubric. And you can hand it to classroom teacher and they can tell you what they see on that rubric. So if you're using a rubric that talks about, you know, they can answer WH questions when provided with visuals or they can do them independently as long as the story's read twice or whatever those things are on your rubric. 
other people can look at it. And we're not just speaking one language. You talked about the ability to, to use the same words across professions and to make sure that we're actually communicating since we're often talking about the same things. We've found that using that very traditional speech and language behavior of 80% in four out of five trials across three consecutive sessions doesn't translate to other people and other places. And so we really moved away from that with these socially significant goals because putting them in a rubric, other people can then see what the impact is we're trying to create. And we know if we've done what we said we were going to do. Such a great tip. And I, I think the reminder of writing socially significant goals is so important because that's a lot of what communication is, is communicating with another person, right? So I appreciate you sharing that. Let's talk about terminology again, because I think when people hear reinforcement, that can be a little bit triggering. So can you give examples of like how reinforcement is applicable across the board, whether it's intrinsic motivation, whether you're an adult, like, can you give examples? For sure. Well, one of the things we, we talk about when we teach is we talk about the word consequences, because also that word, everyone thinks consequences are bad. I'm like, well, the consequence of going to work every day is getting a paycheck. And I don't think that's bad. So consequences are bad. And reinforcement is not always a piece of licorice, I think, is a big deal for people to understand. I think for us, our goal is always that we become the reinforcement, right? Like, to me, reinforcement is I'm telling you that you did a great job. And that can look a variety of different ways. That can look like me giving you a high five and being excited. That can look like me clapping for you. It might look like me giving you a penny on a penny chart so that you can earn something that you're working for later on. But most of the time, we our job is to teach hard skills, right? We have to get kids out of their comfort zone to teach them something new, which isn't easy. And most of the time, if you're learning something new and you're being pushed, you need a reason to do it. And if it's just because I told you so and I want you to do what I'm telling you to, you're going to have the higher likelihood of seeing that shut down. And like, again, why? Why am I doing this? And we might need to build in something extrinsic for a while so that we can get through that hard push until it becomes something that is naturally reinforced, like answering a question when your mom asks you what you want for dinner. I can now answer that WH question and get what I want for dinner. So I think that there is this overarching idea that reinforcement is contrived or something that is fake that we might need to put in place for a minute, but it's leading to something that is natural in the outside environment. And I will say that we, as much as humanly possible, we avoid things like primary reinforcers, and our children do not need to be fed an M&M every time they perform a behavior. Now, as most of us who have potty trained a child or will get to potty train a child someday, I sure as heck gave my child M&Ms every time they use the potty. If that was what made diapers go away at my house, I was 100% on board with that kind of reinforcement. So remembering that primary reinforcement has a time and a place, but we do avoid that kind of contrived reinforcement as much as we can. The other thing that I, I always want to caution people on is that use of the word intrinsic reinforcement. Intrinsic sounds like it comes from inside you, but really there's not, there are very few things that are reinforced just by us doing them. If you run 
and you're a runner and you love to run, your reinforcement is the way you feel afterward. It's the recognition of the endorphins you get or the accomplishment you get for beating the time that you set yourself. But again, those things don't necessarily come from just inside you. You've created a reinforcement system. Your physical self has a reinforcement system. So recognizing that almost everything we do every single day has some sort of reinforcement system that exists because of society, that exists because of the way we built things for ourselves. Amber and I are both to-do list writers and our biggest reinforcer is crossing the thing off the to-do list because that that black line through it is like winning. Um, to recognizing that reinforcement systems are prevalent every single day in everything you do from the moment you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night. You're going to bed at that time because it provides you some level of reinforcement. You're waking up at the time you wake up because it provides you some level of reinforcement. It's all day and in all things for us. The other thing that we run into a lot is this idea as therapists that, you know, my reinforcer is caribou or my reinforcer is the sticker chart. And one, that's a problem because we're choosing what the reinforcer is, which we can't really do because I could tell Amy all day that cucumbers are amazing. But if that's what I was going to give her for doing something, we're never going to get anywhere. <laughs> but I think the other issue is, is that when we look at it in this contrived way, there's this idea that that's always going to be the reinforcer and that, okay, well, if we introduce M&Ms for potty training, my child's going to be 18 years old and I'm still going to have to give them an M&M. And we don't look at it in this holistic way that we're always changing. We're always reducing if it is a contrived reinforcer that we're bringing in at the beginning. And we firmly believe in teaching the reinforcement of a natural activity. And a lot of the kids that we work with initially don't necessarily know that things are fun. And they don't know that activities are fun. They don't know a high five is a great thing. And it's our job then to teach that fun and to teach that something is rewarding and reinforcing. And so I think that it's important to recognize that it changes. It's a continuum and it's never something that we're just stuck with. Yeah, no, I love both of those answers. And I want to hone in on something that you said which or just like the example that you gave, which was writing to-do lists and checking them off. Some people would say that is intrinsic motivation, but what you pointed out is the to-do list is actually external. So that's really fascinating. It's like the, like you were saying, like this continuum, it's not black or white. It's a very like gray <laughs> concept. And we tend to be very black and white thinkers and something that I've been trying to embrace lately and like preach about as being an hand thinker. Like it doesn't have to be extrinsic or intrinsic. It can be both. And I think you really explained that very well here. So thank you for that. Like we're trying to teach kids to be reinforced by what they're doing. But right. sometimes you have to teach them. When you think about WH questions and I am, I, I love books. I love kids books. Lady Pancake and Sir French Toast is probably one of my favorite kid books on the planet. But kids don't encounter it necessarily, and they don't realize how fun it is to read it and how funny it is unless you can take them through it. But once you get them going on it, I'm like, this book is a kid. 
and you get them going on it and they're laughing at the things in it. And there are parts of it that you have to teach them that like, oh, look at this thing that's funny about this book. But they don't always, especially our kids with language disorders, they don't find it by themselves. And so once you lead them there, the excitement changes and that motivation does start to come from inside. And they do start to enjoy finding the silly things in the story you're reading or finding the the awesome part of the video you're using in therapy. But they don't, they aren't there by themselves right away because by nature they're with us because they have a speech and language disorder. Yeah. Well, and I think one big theme that you're explaining here is joy. Like there should be joy in therapy. No matter what you're doing, it should be socially significant and it should lead to joy. <laughs> Nothing should be leading to harm or like negative consequences and so forth. So let's talk about understanding the why in our goals and activities and how to make sure that we are sticking to that. Um, well, so we do this thing with our team where we have them have a mission statement, a mission statement of why they're here every day, um, of what the purpose of being in your speech room on the school campus or in your therapy room at the clinic or wherever you're providing those services. What's your why? Why are you doing it? And for most of us, it's to to change a child's life, to impact the way that they're able to interact with their environment, offer them more independence, like Amber said, starting with that mission statement. And our advice would be make sure it's vis visible because then on the really hard days, which we all have, come back to your why. The other thing that we really advocate is that it can't all be about work. You got to establish rapport with your with the students or the kids with whom you're working. You have to be friends. They have to want to come to work with you. The only way they're gonna wanna do the hard things is if you put in that foundational work of, we have a good time here. And I see you, I hear you. I'm learning the way you communicate and I want to teach you some things. But without rapport, I think that that's like foundational. Your why has to provide the foundation for what you're doing. Then you can do any activity you want to. Honest to goodness, you can go into therapy with a dry erase board and a pen and nothing else. But if you put those things into place, you know why you're there and the kids trust you because you've been a good part of their world. You can do anything. I think it's really important too when we are talking about the why, you know, we have referenced several times our why and why we're doing things and why we're teaching things to kids. And I think it becomes a roadmap, right? Like Amy said, you're establishing that foundation. You have to make sure that child trusts you because I, if you're going to ask me to do something really hard and I don't trust you, I'm not going to do it for you. Absolutely not. If there is that trust and I know like I can try something hard and I might not be successful, but I know you're here for me, then I'm willing to go there. And then you start looking at your goals and looking at the skills that you are trying to teach. Again, socially significant, something that's meaningful to the child that's going to allow for access to independence or using the skill out in the community in that child's world. Then we start looking at, again, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, what are those interfering behaviors? What's getting in our way? You know, most of us as speech language pathologists, hopefully we've set some really good measurable goals and we have a good reason for why we're working on them. And we say, okay, my job is to teach you this speech and language skill. But 
you're hiding under the table every time I ask you a question. So I can't get there. I need to now investigate the why of this interfering behavior. Mm -hmm. And there's something out there called the functions of behavior. And this is really what we look at. And the functions or behavior are typically that you're trying to get attention. You don't know how. You're trying to escape a task because it's too hard. You don't know how to do it. You don't have enough help. You're wanting access to some sort of item that I probably have in my hand or have in my room with me. And then you have the function of just that sensory system, right? When we were talking about dysregulation, that I am engaging in a behavior because it makes me feel a certain way and I am trying to get more of that feeling. So that's kind of the foundation of what we're looking at when we are, when Amy says we speak behavior, we're watching those behaviors to see what are you getting out of this? And that will then allow you to make the choice of, okay, I'm going to replace this behavior with something that is socially appropriate. So you can gain access to that same thing that you're trying to get through the interfering behavior. Yeah. No, thank you for explaining that and providing examples. It's always really helpful, I think, for listeners here. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we wrap up today? I appreciate being able to talk through a behavioral lens with the knowledge that I, I would love. I would love to invite everybody to come watch or spend a day at our clinic. Like, I think it's different than people have in their heads that just because you you might use words like ABA or behavior. There's a lot of fun that happens mm -hmm. when you get those things in your head and you're able to look at them and say, I understand what you're saying. And hey, let me try a better way for you to say that. Let me try a better way for you to communicate that so that more people can understand you. Because just because I understand that when you hide under the table, that means that you're asking me for help. Not everybody's going to understand that. And so it's not respectful to me or to you, for me to let you hide under the table and not try and help you translate that to something you can tell more people. So I think that the kind of the idea of, of gently seeing the relationship between speech and behavior is something that I'm glad you were able to let us talk about. I think also it's really important to talk about, you know, when we mention something like a replacement behavior or Amy says, you know, I need to teach you a different way to ask for help than hiding under the table. Um, as you start looking through that lens, it really does start to make sense. Like, okay, I see that you are throwing this paper off the table. That means that <laughs> this is hard. You don't want to do it. We're huge advocates of just teaching kids to say no, because in our profession, we really want kids to sit at the table with us and say yes to everything that we present them with. Um, and no is a very powerful word that, again, can replace a lot of behaviors. Mm. But I think as you're looking at, okay, how do I replace this with something that's more socially appropriate that other people are going to understand, it's really important to recognize that whatever behavior you're teaching to replace the behavior that's interfering has to be easier than the current behavior that is being used, and it has to work faster. So if we're saying, hey, instead of yelling out at your teacher, you need to raise your hand and wait. <laughs> it's your job when you're teaching that skill to respond immediately every single time until you get that behavior established. Because I think if you go out there thinking, you know, I'm going to teach you to say, Miss Amy, can I have a cucumber, please? 
then that that's probably really hard. So we just need to recognize that we have to start somewhere easy, again, where you can access that reinforcement very quickly before we can establish that behavior. And then I think just being open-minded and recognizing that most people in all of these fields that we're talking about, like you said, we're all here for the same reason. We're all here to help these kids. And I think not shutting ourselves in a box because of the language that we use or preconceived ideas that we have can just allow for more learning and more collaboration to help this population that we are committed to working with. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both so much. So people are interested in connecting with you, talking more about this episode. Where can they find you? The easiest place to find us is on social media under the talk team. We have locations, a couple of locations in California. So you'll see the talk team and you'll see the talk team Sacramento. And then also our ABA clinic, if you're curious about what it looks like, they also have a pretty active social media under talk ABA. Our website is thetalkteam.com, and we honestly love brainstorming and coming up with innovative solutions when there are professionals out there encountering these behaviors that they're having a hard time working through. So we advocate getting in touch with us if you want to talk through anything at all. Awesome. Thank you both so much. This has been, I think, really helpful for both fields and just having you know, someone that can represent both sides and show that gray area and have an open conversation about these topics is really, really helpful for our fields. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you. We really appreciate that you are out there highlighting these things and spreading different ideas. Awesome. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, have you joined the SSU crew yet? By joining, you get access to the free good section on our website, plus podcast updates, special event notifications, and therapy inspiration. You can sign up at bit.ly slash join SSU crew, all lowercase, or just find the link in this episode description. Also, don't forget to take a screenshot of this episode so that you can always refer back to it and share it on social media if you really love the topic. Take care and remember to always fill your speechy side cup first before you can pour into others.